I don't remember the exact language, but they just said something like, oh, would you be interested in building it here? And we we're like, what do you mean? And they said, well, we're interested in acquiring your company. Would you be interested in working on your product as part of Lyft? Yeah, we just muted it and we we're like, what? What is good, everybody? This is Michael Zakan, founder and CEO of Our Future. We're the go-to business podcast for young people, creating the most digestible, exciting interview content for young, aspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders who want to change our future. Now, today I have a really, really exciting interview for you guys. It was one I was looking forward to for a while. Now, this interview is with Kanan Saleh. And Kanan is an incredible entrepreneur. He sold his first company at, at the age of 21. Yes. And he and his co-founders actually sold that company within seven months of starting it. And it was called Halo Cars. And it was acquired by Lyft. See, what this company did is create a digitally connected rooftop display for rideshare drivers. And what it was was a huge play on advertising, on outdoor advertising specifically, uh, and also a strategy to help rideshare drivers get supplemental income by getting those ads going on the top of their cars. So this is a pretty crazy story, a super fast acquisition and an amazing Gen Z founder in the advertising space. So Kanan continues to work in this space. So when Lyft acquired the company, he became head of product at Lyft Media. Please enjoy this interview full of entrepreneurial takeaways. Let's get it, guys. Wow. Why don't we start off with your family? I mean, where where are you from? And, you know, uh, where do you come from? Did you Were you raised in an entrepreneurial household? Is, is that what your childhood was? I grew up in Wisconsin, in a small town, a very small town in Wisconsin. And okay. both of my parents are physicians. My dad's a heart doctor, a cardiologist, and my mom's a foot doctor, a podiatrist. So I grew up in basically the middle of nowhere, Midwest, two physician parents. I was an only child for a while. And then I had a brother, a younger brother when I was seven. So there's a big difference between us. Little gap. Um, okay. Yeah, exactly. And to your question of, was it an entrepreneurial household? Not really. It was a quite academic household more than anything. Um, because okay. both my parents, doctor or physician is a very academic career. You have to get tested mm -hmm. and do, you have to get board certified every 10 years or something. So there's a lot of studying exams. It was a very academic household. Got it. So did you think that the medicine route was one for you for a long time? Or were you always like, okay, my family does this. I'm not sure if this is right for me because I did notice mm -hmm. that there might've been a triple major on your LinkedIn. It was management at UPenn, as well as comp sci and biology. So was yeah. that pre-med lurking in there in that mix? It was, it was. Yeah, you're, you're picking it up correctly. So I started off um, in high school and most of my previous time before high school thinking I wanted to be a doctor. Not really knowing though, mostly wanting to be a doctor because my parents were doctors and I was told it's good to be a doctor. And then I came into college freshman year expecting to be a doctor, sort of doubting. I wasn't set on it 100%, but I didn't have another, I didn't have anything else that I clearly wanted to do. So I was like, well, let me just try this until I figure out sure. something else. So I did that for my freshman year. By my sophomore year, I, I switched um, from, I was a biology major when I started. I switched my sophomore year into, um, I added management as my, just like a business uh, major in general. And then I started taking computer science courses. So I got deeper into that as college went on. And then wow. I ended up getting a minor in biology because I had already taken the classes. So I stopped taking biology courses, but I'd taken enough where I already got the minor. So I just took it. There was no reason not to. 
Um, but sophomore year and after it was all business computer science type courses. Got it. Super interesting how you realized kind of mid college, you wanted to do something else. It's, you know, it's pretty natural. And that's a good thing about American colleges. Like, you know, my family's from the UK and if you got to decide like when you're 16, what you want to do and you can't really switch. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a good side of our education system and, you know, going to the schools we do. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm in Michigan right now. I'm at the, the Ross school of business. You know, you're also, uh, at the UPenn, you know, business school. Um, mm-hmm. When, when you arrived at Wharton, were you thinking entrepreneurially? I mean, let's start talk starting a company in college. I mean, did being an entrepreneur enter your mind? Did it start to trickle in when you were doing the business and comp side courses? Because obviously, you know, everyone who's looms large in those fields is in many cases an entrepreneur. Is that kind of yeah, what no, I did. in your head? I knew in high school that I was interested in entrepreneurship. For example, actually, so a, um, a defining of a big moment for me personally, and what was in during high school when I watched, or maybe middle school, I forgot, when I watched The Social Network for the first time, the movie about Facebook. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. it was actually like, a, had a huge influence on my life um, because I saw that movie and I saw basically the power of if you're young, but you can build things and those things are valuable, then you can have immense success in financially, socially, personally, and you can basically um, elevate, you know, your standing in the world much faster than you could working your way up a career path, like a doctor or anything else that has very structured career paths. So I saw that and I was like, wow, if you, if you can build things and you can build things that people want, you can just cut through the entire um, trajectory of moving yeah. your way up and just go straight to the top. And yeah. you can also do it. You can do it with a lifestyle that you would like. You don't have to follow. You don't have to listen to other people's commands or you don't have to follow some other structure. You can do whatever you want. So it was appealing to me. And I was like, this is powerful. Um, and I wanted to be like, I wanted that kind of it, life. I didn't want the other life that I was seeing. It, it, it's like a polar opposite with medicine where, where you, you know you have to be credentialed and it takes years, right? Yeah. It's exponential as opposed to linear. I joke about it with some of my, you know, kid friends who want to go to med school, you know, by the time, you know, they're, they're graduating med school, you know, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be running companies and in your case, you know, uh, right. Even after you graduated undergrad, you were able to, to, to sell this company, Halo cars, um, yep. within less than a year of starting it. So yep. w- let's talk about the formulation for that idea. Tell me how you were thinking through this, like this wild west of, of the marketing verse. There's two things that we were seeing. And the first thing is that most of the advertisements on top of yellow cabs, yellow cab advertising has been an industry for a long time, more than 20 years, but most of the advertisements on top of yellow cabs are static and static meaning, meaning they're paper. Um, so they're paper ads that they put on top of the cars. And then what happens is every few months they switch them. They call the cars back, they take them down and they manually put new ones up. So it was a super old school non-digital industry and they've started to put digital screens on top of taxis in new york but most of them are still static so the first thing we saw is that we can just digitize this and we can use better tech and better data that was the first thing the second thing is that it's only been there's only ever been taxi uh car top advertising because taxis before were the only fleets and cars that drove around enough where it made sense to put advertising on them no one puts an advertising on top of their personal car because 
most likely you don't drive enough for it to have enough value. Really. You wouldn't make much money. It wouldn't be that valuable from an advertising perspective. Um, you need, in order for it to be valuable, you need a car that's driving almost 40 hours, like basically 40 plus hours per week. Um, uh, otherwise you can't make that much money off of it just, uh, from a unit economic standpoint. And before it was only taxis, but Uber and Lyft had built out taxi like networks in every single city of full-time drivers. And that was something new that happened over the last five years where every city got its own taxi light network. And you could, you could put uh, advertisements on those cars because they were driving full time and they were driving enough. And there was a critical mass of them in each city. So it was possible in many more cities than New York. Whereas before it was only in New York, New York was the only one that had this kind of dynamic or, you know, large. Because they have, they have the population, they have the the market to be able to make these advertisements worth it. Right. Um, So, you know, did you not think about going to cab companies where Uber's the kind of immediate opportunity there? Um, and had no one done this before, like a connected box on, on top of these, these vehicles? I mean, ha- had that not been done before? No, not really. So there was, we had one other competitor that was doing it basically at the same time as us called Firefly. They were slightly before us actually, but um, us, we were the two main companies in the space and the two only ones in the United States. So this, this hadn't been done before for whatever reason, I think primarily because of, like I said, the Uber and Lyft networks and the, the deep bench of full-time drivers started happening in like 2015, 2016, 2017. So it's fairly recent that there's been these large networks of drivers in each city. So I imagine that's why, um, and yeah, that, that's basically uh, what it was. Got it. Got it. So let's talk about, right. I mean, how long did it take from you and your co-founder having the idea to actually having this prototype that you could hold in your hands and be like, wow, we're going to put this on a car. Um, how long yeah. did it take to go from zero to zero to one with that? That didn't take very long. And the reason why is because we were able to find a manufacturer in China who could make this for us. They were actually already making this product, but for taxis, basically. And they were making it for taxis in other parts of the world. So it was taxis in like Thailand, parts of Southeast Asia that did advertising. And this company made the digital screens for those taxi companies. So we found that company through Alibaba, actually. But we found that company and we told them that we were trying this business model out in the US. And we wanted to get a sample of one of their units. And they sent us one. And then, so we bought it on Alibaba, they sent it to us, and then we tested it out in our, first in our dorms, then we put it on a car and we started testing it around. And we did that maybe, if we started, we started working on it in like October is when we started talking about it. And then we had our first prototype by January. Okay. So a couple months, we basically, within a month, we ordered it. It took a month to get from China. And then we started playing around with it. It took us a few months to figure out how it works, figure out how to, to attach it to the car how to control what was being shown on it, build some tech around it. And then we use that to actually build hardware. So we started off with just like a really crappy prototype. Um, yeah. That could, we could learn how the business works. And then we use that to figure out what hardware to build. And we built more custom hardware after that. Yeah. I mean, talk about an MVP, right? Um, and yeah. this product was, was pretty much fully done. Like the, the product that they shipped you from China was, pretty much the product and you threw your logo on it and it was the halo box. Is that mostly correct? That's, that's correct. So the first product that we got, but the first prototype was, was really bad. It was 
it was, yeah, it was just, there were a lot of things bad about it. The internal parts were bad. It looked ugly. The shape was weird. The materials were weird. It wasn't a good piece of hardware, but it was our first one. And then after that, when we ordered a large, we ordered an um, actual mass quantity order. Um, that one was customized. So we, after everything we learned from the first one, we went back to the manufacturer and we said, okay, we want to change this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And then we worked with them and co-developed it with them for a couple months. And then they, they made a custom one for us. And that was like our pr product that nobody else had. Got it. That is uh that is awesome that you're able to convince them to create a custom product with yeah. you guys. Well, it wasn't like, so it wasn't crazy custom. Like they weren't changing the entire bomb and the entire design, but we asked them to change a few key things. Like we told them, we want you to change the material of this. We want you to change the shape of this. There was like four or five things that were important to us. And we changed some of the internal components, but um, beyond that, it was fairly similar. So it wasn't a huge ask. Like it was, it was reasonable yeah. for them to do that. But, but these guys in China, wherever this was being made, trusted two college kids at UPenn who were running around trying to start a business while they're doing their classwork. To roll out a new prototype. Something that helped is we went to China. So we did this in China. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So they saw us. So there was, there's more trust when you're with somebody and then we paid them. Like we didn't just, uh, we didn't just ask for a product. We bought all the units. So, and we put it down, we put a deposit for it. So before they shipped it to us, Got it. we put down, I believe it was 30%. So there was money behind it. So they, there was reason for them to trust us basically. Did, did you guys raise any money in those early days? Was this bank yeah. by you and your families? Like how did, how did that happen? We didn't raise money for the first prototype. We paid that one out of pocket, but it was one unit. So it wasn't that expensive. But what I'm talking about when we put down a deposit for the first order we made, I believe was for 150. So we put down a deposit for 150. That was from an angel round. We raised Got it. Uh, we raised half a million right before uh, we graduated. So this was before we were, we were playing around with this idea as students and seriously, but as students. And then in May, I graduated and then we all finished the semester and then we took it full time. My co-founders dropped out. I had graduated and we took it full time and we raised our interim right then. Like literally, I think it was like the day after I graduated, we raised our, our pre-seed round and then we did the custom hardware. Perfect timing, eh? That you were, yeah, it was, uh, you were graduating pet at that time. Like I still have a year left of school and it's like, huh, you know, um, it's good timing. The whole thing worked perfectly. It was literally like, yeah. So the day before graduation, I'm in New York, um, raising our, our round. I'm in New York and Miami for whatever reason. One of our lead investors in Miami. So I was in New York and Miami, and then this is the day before graduation. And then I fly back, graduate, and then next day, round closes, I move to New York, start working on Halo. So that's so crazy to me that you watched the social network and like literally in college, you built a business and you were going to CVCs in New York and see factories in China. That is just like, that's crazy to me. Like you, you, like you saw that, that movie, and you ended up living it. Like that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> at, a smaller, at a smaller scale. That how, movie. how did yeah. that feel? How, how did that feel to be a college student, you know, going around raising money? Did you, did you have a chip on your shoulder at that point? Did you, how did you, you know, think of yourself in relation to your peers? I mean, you know, it, you were doing some big stuff, you yeah. somehow convincing adults to believe in this idea you had. I mean, it, it was more than anything. It was fun. I would say it was like the most fun I've ever had. And to give you a sense of what we were doing, I mean, we were, when we were in New York, we were five people. The team was five. 
and then it became six actually, but it was basically like five people living in one house in Brooklyn, yeah. um, working out of our, it was a townhouse basically that we had working out of our living room, which was our office where we had our hardware. We were doing hardware on a kitchen table. It was, it was like really fun and it was super scrappy. And it was just, it had this like hacker in a garage type ethos to it. Damn right. So it was, and then we were sleeping upstairs. It was like the work was down in the living room. The ground floor was our work, our office. And then upstairs were the bedrooms where we slept. So we were just like living, breathing. Was there, was there any balance um, during that time of building the, the company together? Um, do you mean like work-life balance basically? Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of, not really. I mean, I would say that what we did is, first is that we were all we were all really, really bought in and excited to work on this. So we were working a lot of hours and we were working weekends and we were doing, uh, we were working a ton, but nobody was stressed about it. And no one was working because they had to. Everybody was working because they wanted to. So we had a official like company hours and they were normal, but everybody worked beyond that. And no one had to, like no one was asked to, no one was told to. It was just that everybody wanted to. So we worked a lot, but we enjoyed it. It wasn't, it wasn't work in the same way that people think of a work-life balance where it's like, I need, I need life to, you know, because I get tired of work. No one was getting tired of work. So it didn't have, that's why work-life balance. It wasn't really a concept. We were just enjoying it. And then we also did a lot of stuff that were like half company events, half fun events. So for example, we, we had dinner every night together and at dinner, we would talk about Halo, but we'd also talk about other things and we'd also relax. So it was a mix of sort of like, and we were all friends. That's so so. fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fun. You guys are all like good friends, just like working on this business. Um, Like we would play basketball together all the time and it would be like half and half because we would talk about business stuff while playing. We were also playing basketball. So it was all one thing. There wasn't like work in life. It was just all one thing and it was good. It was fun. So you guys had hardly even launched the product. Like you literally just launched it and you know, Lyft took interest in you. I mean, what was that like being in, I don't know, month seven, eight of the business and you've got, you know, the biggest player or one of the biggest players in the industry interested in in, in what you're doing. Um, Tell me how that went down. Like how did they first get on your radar and where were you at when the, they started knocking? That part was, was, was wild. The, we were not even really seven months in because we had graduated in May or finished school in May. And then we received our offer in September. I think actually in August is when we, but September is when it was finalized basically. And so it was not even six months. It was, we were basically at like three months more or less. Cause we, even when we graduated in May, it wasn't, it was May 20th. So it was almost June. So it was, it was a very short period of time. And it also wasn't, it came completely out of the sky. We literally got a cold LinkedIn message from their corporate team and they asked to talk and we started talking. And then we talked three, four times, just about high level. What are you guys doing? Um, you know, why is it important? Why is it valuable? They just wanted to get to know us and they asked a lot of questions. And then fifth meeting, they just dropped it out of nowhere uh, that they wanted to, they were interested in acquiring us. And then it went straight into a negotiation. So what was that like? You were like, Oh shoot. Like this company wants yeah. to acquire me. Yeah. That's what it was like. We, we were on a phone call. I was on a phone call with my co-founder and we were just talking. We weren't even taking the call seriously. I remember. So I took it from like the car. It was just like a casual conversation. And then 
uh, at the time we were doing something, we were like recruiting drivers. So I was in an airport lot or something. I was like, not even, I was not expecting it anyway. And then, um, they, they said that they, I don't remember the exact language, but they just said something like, Oh, would you be interested in building it here? And we're like, what do you mean? And they said, well, we were interested in acquiring your company. Would you be interested in working on your product as part of Lyft? And yeah. then, yeah, we just muted it. And we we're like, what? And then we we're like, yeah, we, you know, and we asked them for more details and stuff. And then they sent them, but it was mm -hmm. completely out of the sky. That's unreal. But you had to have known that they were in many ways looking to hire you as opposed to just acquiring a company and letting you, you yeah, know, yeah. go yeah, your own way. That. They said right. that a million times. They were like, the reason why, so the other reason why it was unexpected is because we were talking to them um, in like a partnership context. So we had been talking for a while about running a pilot with them. And I had been pushing that very hard. I was like, I was telling them we should do a pilot together. We could just do like 10 cars, something small, something that you don't need to put a lot of time into. We'll handle everything. And I, for me, success on that phone call was them saying we could run a pilot together. And basically the phone call went, okay, forget the pilot. We just want to buy the whole company. So that's crazy. It, yeah, that's what happened. And had you had you been were you at that time you were an S corp? You had you had yeah C corp given yeah. out equity. Got it. You were C corp. Okay, got it. Yeah, we were um, we were ticked and, ticked and tied. There was no issues there. So, but uh, it was still early. And then they said many times that we are interested in your team and your product. We think that your team is excellent, and then you you guys know how to work well together. And this product we want it to be developed at Lyft, but we want to basically give you resources and then help you develop it. We think that we can basically, you can develop it better with us than you can alone. And, but you're the right people to do it. So they, it was very clear that they wanted the team as well. They said that many times. Yeah. I mean, the advantages, right. Of, of going over there, right. You get all this funding resources yeah. to, to play with this idea, take it to the moon. You get the market, you get lift as a means of getting advertisers on board was there a thought to like, we're not ready to sell this yet? Like we've only been working on this for seven months and we want a big exit. I mean, what, what was, was there any like rationale as to why you shouldn't sell the company and how extensively did you discuss that with, with your team? We thought about it a lot and the, the decision that we made, and this is the thought process. The thought process is we thought that this business of, rideshare advertising, we think ultimately needs to lie with the rideshare players. And the reason why is because we think that they have um, just complete competitive advantages of over any other independent company. And the reason why is that Lyft, for example, has their own fleet of cars. I don't know if many people know this, but they have their own fleet of cars that they rent out to drivers that they own. Really? They have a fleet of thousands and thousands of cars that are their cars that they, that they own. Some, they give them to drivers to drive, but they own them. So the idea here is that while we were, while we were scrapping to recruit drivers one by one, and then we had to pay each driver a lot of money in order to put this on top of their car, Lyft, for example, to start, has access to every driver instantly. And when they own the cars, it's their car. So they don't need to pay drivers in the same way that we need to pay right. drivers. Because you're strapping, so, you're strapping something on to this person's on roof, their car. Right? They own yeah, it, so on that's their why car. You it. But if it's your car, you don't need to pay anyone. It's your car. So yeah. uh, we knew that that this this kind of business needed to lie with one of them, and a, an independent company doing this was unlikely to succeed. We thought eventually it needs to be with with sure. one of the rideshare players if it's going to be successful. Sure. And Lyft clearly wanted to enter the space. 
And um, we didn't know Uber's intentions, but we had heard some things that they were also looking to enter the space and they were looking at other companies in the space. And we know that they already had a partnership with an existing player in the space. So we're like, okay, Lyft wants to enter. Uber's probably going to enter. And if they both enter and we're out of this, um, I don't know if we'll be able to survive alone. So this is probably the time to align with them and be successful rather than stay outside and take our chances. We didn't want to take our chances of competing with them. I mean, the only thing is like you guys founded the business as a way to help drivers and you know, with Lyft acquiring the business, I would assume that it's just adding directly to their bottom line, right? I mean, is no, there any still, pr- profit Lyft sharing? Still, so we still pay drivers, but okay. from the ad- less, yes, we pay less than um, Halo did as an independent company. Yeah. So that makes it's sense. better. It's better unit economics, but it's it's still 100% um, beneficial to the driver. And so drivers still get money um, and then Lyft gets money as well. It's a win for both parties. Um, what kind of advertisers, uh, advertise with you guys? All types. Uh, we've had, you know, the, the A-list top tier brands. We've had Starbucks, Target. We've had all of those nice. kind of classic brands. We've had a bunch of startups, um, Truebill, Bonza, Geology. I, I don't know if you've heard of that. That's awesome. But yeah. Have you heard, so we've had all types of startups like that. We've had, we've had, um, SMBs sort of like, We've had local lawyers. We've had local restaurants. How much is your typical campaign size? Um, our typical campaign size has fluctuated a lot over the years. When we started off as Halo, it was in the 10 to 15K range. At Lyft, it's become a lot larger. So, mm-hmm. But in that range, generally, like a lot normal one for us is somewhere between 10 and 100. It's basically a sliding scale. So you know, you, if you pay more, you get more ad space. So it's a sliding scale based off of how much advertising or how much budget the client has. That range is typical there. Got it. Got it. So you've been head of product at Lyft Media for two years now? About two years. I think a little bit less at this point. I actually think it's more like a year and a half now. And how much have you grown the, that segment of Lyft's business? Well, so what happened is the Halo team joined and it became what's called Lyft Media. And Lyft Media is a business unit within Lyft. It's an umbrella business unit for all advertising products with Halo being the first product, which is rooftop advertising. And then there's, there's gonna be more. This is gonna be a suite of products within Lyft. And for rooftop, oh, wow. I, we, yeah, exactly. So for rooftop, we've grown substantially. I mean, we went from, when we were acquired, we had less than a hundred vehicles. We now have, we're getting close to a thousand now. Um, wow. when, when we joined, it was a team of three co-founders and then we had three interns. That was the, the six that I'm talking about. And we went from that, which is like kind of, you could say three full-time members. We now have on our team, I think almost 20, maybe more. So we have a, a much larger team, our revenues. I can't say a lot about our revenues, but they've grown substantially. Everything's grown quite a bit since we joined. What is your one big piece of career advice to young entrepreneurs? Huh? Take more risks and take more um, bets on yourself and especially understand what's actually a risk versus what is only a risk in your head. Um, There's a lot of people who think that doing entrepreneurship is a lot riskier than it is. You're not gonna starve. You're 
going to get paid a salary if you raise money, um, you will be fine. And if, if you don't get the job that you want out of college or you don't have the same internship that somebody else does, it's not actually a large risk in your life. Um, and I would encourage more people to do to take more risk bet on themselves, do things that are out of the ordinary. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Kanan Saleh sharing some amazing insights on our future podcast today. Before you guys get off to your own pursuits, just want to make sure to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening. And if you haven't yet, subscribe on YouTube as well as going to the show notes and subscribing to our weekly newsletter, which distills the knowledge from the week of our interviews and some big, broad takeaways delivered right to your inbox every Sunday. And I know you guys love those big, broad takeaways. Now I need to ask you guys to please leave our future review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. It takes less than 60 seconds and it's also the number one driver of downloads for younger podcasts. It will really help us grow. So please just take that time, tap us out a quick review of five stars. And I wanna thank you again for taking the time to listen to this podcast. It means the world to me. We're gonna see some crazy content and way more of it coming out soon. And I hope you show this pop with a friend. Ask them, A-Y-P-O-F, are you part of our future? It's a new tagline I'm going with. In addition to our traditional one, which is stay frosty, everybody. Peace out. Be with you again soon.